Episode 208 of the PJ Archive is a very enjoyable interview I did with the brilliant British artist, author and conservationist David Shepherd. David was best known for his instantly recognisable paintings of wildlife, although he also often painted steam locomotives, aircraft, portraits and landscapes. He had five books published, including an autobiography. The David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation continues to do great work to this day. David died in 2017 at the age of 86. My interview with him took place in 1993 at his then wonderful home in Surrey. Any exhibitions coming up? Uh, a small one in South Africa only, yes. Yeah. Uh, the problem when you're lucky enough to be successful is you can't hang on to any pictures for exhibitions. You see, I've got a four-year backlog ahead of me in commissioned work privately for people, so you can't sort of put things aside to sell from exhibitions. I'm so old now, I don't suppose I'll ever have another exhibition. It's rather sad, actually. <laughs> but, I mean, what more can an artist wish for than to have a four-year backlog? You've actually got four years of painting yeah. still to do. How are you going to catch up on that? Well, I, I don't. Uh, first of all, I can't shorten the wait list because I, I can't say no, you see. The greatest compliment an artist can be paid is when somebody said, uh, says, I want one of your pictures. And I don't charge enough, obviously, because everybody says, oh, God, I thought it was going to be far more than that. Mm. So I've landed myself with another tiger or another elephant, and I think, oh, God, you know, I'm getting old. <laughs> and uh, it's marvellous, and it gets longer because uh, I spend so much time out of the studio now on fundraising for the foundation, or else in the studio painting free pictures for the foundation, because that's what it's all about. I mean, I'm so lucky. Life is so full. It's unbelievable. You've had some very distinguished people commission you in your time. Tell us a few of the names. Um, have I? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I just paint for lovely, ordinary people. Um, well, I painted the Queen Mum. I mean, that was a terrific thrill. I painted President Carpenter of Zambia, or the last president of Zambia, who is a very close friend, uh, friend of ours. Um, I can't think of anybody else. I, I just, I'd love to help Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands. Yeah, a few more princes. But no, I mean, it's not like that. I, I sincerely get much more pleasure and satisfaction out of doing a painting, a small little painting for, say, a postman or a milkman or a dustman. And I'm not being clasped classy saying that, don't get me wrong. All my best friends are those sort of people, instead of the, some of the snobs around here. But I live in the middle of the Surrey Stockbroker Belt where there's awful snobs. They're really, you don't paint for those sort of people, do you? No, I get much more satisfaction when a chap has to save up. You know, and I mean, I've had people say, oh, my God, I won't be able to eat for six months, but I'd rather have your pictures than eat. And that's a compliment enough. So I don't paint for sort of famous people. I love to paint for just ordinary people, lovely people. So what does the David Shepherd Commission cost? I knew you were going to ask that, so I'll tell you, because, I mean, the Daily Mirror asked me anyway, and I, if I don't tell the Daily Mirror, they put it in anyway, and had a few noughts. Well, um, you have to be very careful here when you answer that question. I will answer it truthfully. My prices start at about 1000 for a very tiny picture, a wildlife picture. I wouldn't charge that for a landscape, because my wildlife paintings command much higher prices than my other work. But to be sincere about this, I just don't know what my work is worth. I don't anymore, because it's a question of supply and demand. And just one example of this, I painted a leopard picture for a private client about four years ago. It was a 20 by 16 canvas about this big, for what I thought was a fair price, 18,000 plus that. And he sold it. He actually reneged on me. I mean, I, I trust people. And this man said it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. Keep it for my great-grandchildren. He promptly sold it when he didn't have to, to a gallery, who then sold it to another gallery. And some sort of justice, I suppose. It was stolen from a gallery up in the north of England with a price tag of 80,000 on it. No, it's a correction, 60,000. It had gone from 18 to 60 in three years. Now, people think I charge that sort of price, and I don't. It was the gallery being greedy. 
And so, you see, I don't know what my work is worth, honestly, but I know I don't charge enough because that's why I've got such a backlog. Mm. But I don't want to price myself out of the market. I want to paint for everybody who is nice enough to want one of my pictures. We hear of so many artists who, after they're dead and gone, their paintings are worth a fortune. How do you feel about that? Well, I, I, you know, coming back to the Surrey Stockbroker Belt, I don't want to hammer this point, but we do know one or two strange people around here. When we bought this glorious house, and let's face it, it is a glorious house, it's the sort of house which most artists would never dream of owning. And indeed, I would never have dreamt of owning it, had it not been for my wildlife paintings, because I couldn't have bought this house on the strength of my English landscapes. No way. I mean, I don't know what it's worth, but 16 acres with a trout lake in the middle of the Surrey Stockbroker Belt in Elizabethan farmhouse, grade two listed, 1560, da-da-da. And one or two people, when we bought the house, were amazed at the phenomenon of an artist who is successful enough in order to be able to afford a house like this. I mean, one lady said, oh, what do you do, Mr. Shepherd? Are you the chairman of Shell? You know, some rubbish like that. To have, <laughs> to have a house like this, you've got me on this point now. I love it. And uh, I said, no, I actually work at home. I'm an artist. Oh, what do you mean an artist? What do you do for a living, I mean? And somebody actually went worse than that. They said, I thought you were dead, David. You know, <laughs> it's awful on a Monday morning when somebody says that. The assumption being, you see, that if you're lucky enough to be successful, you've got to be dead 200 years mm. and cut your ear off like poor old Van Gogh. But do you think in 300, 400 years' time, your paintings will still be going for a fortune? I, don't, I just don't know. I'd love to be able to answer that, but I don't know the answer. Would you like it to happen? Um, in a way, yes, because for my great-grandchildren, you know, in years to come, yes, I would like it. But I don't worry about it seven days a week. Oh, gosh, am I going to be famous when I'm dead? Because I'm extremely lucky to have enjoyed the success I'm enjoying while I'm alive. Now, as you've indicated, you do a lot more pictures other than wildlife, but it is wildlife you're best known for. Is it a bit frustrating that people ignore the other side of your art? Yes, it is, and this is a personal problem which is beginning to irritate me more, actually. And to widen that question, if I'm known at all by anybody, uh, I'm getting known as a conservationist first and an artist second, which actually does worry me, because art is my whole life. Mm. And it's a bit ironic, I mean, that because I owe so much to wildlife and therefore I'm determined to do something about it through my work, conservation is taking over. But uh, that's my problem, and only I can control it. But it's without the art, you wouldn't have had the conservation, basically. You wouldn't have had the name to put behind it, really. Absolutely right. And, I mean, my wildlife paintings have transformed my life. And as I said just now, I was bumming along very happily in our first little house when we were married in Farnham, but no way could we have seen and dreamt of living here were it not for the marvellous moment when I started painting wildlife in 1960. Do you think basically you cornered the market then? No. uh, There are a great many young artists coming up who are painting wildlife who, Mm. and nothing better than competition, keeps me on my mettle. The, the funny thing, though, is that there are relatively few wildlife artists who paint in oils. Many of them paint in watercolours, and many of them paint birds. I don't paint birds. We'll get on to that later, if you like, because I've still got my very first painting I ever did, which is of birds, and it's so sickeningly awful. I was chucked out of art school on the strength of it, and I'll show it to you if, you, if you're extremely lucky and you behave yourself. I'll show it to you. It is unbelievable. So, um, but, yes, I mean, there are, I suppose you can count on the fingers of two hands the world's top leading wildlife artists, American and British and elsewhere, and fair enough, I mean, if people don't like my work, they go to somebody else. And if they don't like Joe Bloggs' work, they come to me. And that's right. It's very healthy. It has been said that you're the most successful British artist in the world. Is that true? Who can say it's true or not? The Daily Mail said something rather nice about me uh, many years ago when they wrote about me as being Britain's most successful, unsuccessful artist. And that was actually a very cl- clever turn of phrase because what they were implying was that I was successful in the sense that I'm, in commas, popular. And that's a word which... I don't know whether I like it or not. Popular is a dangerous word, but if in the sense that I sell my work, everything I can do and my limited editions are snapped up, as 
investments if they're not bought as pictures. And they are. People are buying my limited editions now just purely as investments. And they are. They shoot up in value. So I'm very flattered. So if in that sense I'm popular and I, I'm successful, yes, but I'm unsuccessful in the, in the sense that the Daily Mail said so. And I, I like this. They, they actually rang up the Tate Gallery and said, if Bridget Riley's in the Tate Gallery, Bridget Riley paints all her pictures in deck chair stripes. In fact, she gets her students to do the deck chair stripes. If you want to call that art, that's fair enough. I don't. Uh, <laughs> if you've got Bridget Riley in the Tate Gallery, why haven't you got David Shepherd? Because David Shepherd is probably much better known than Bridget Riley. Oh, but uh, David Shepherd, the fact that he's popular doesn't mean to say his art is great art. Well, not only is that nauseating and insulting to the public, but um, I'm so rude about the Tate Gallery. I'm, <laughs> I'm never likely to hang in there. <laughs> but it upsets me, that, you see, because the implication is that the public have no taste, and therefore my success with the public doesn't mean I'm a successful artist. I think that's insulting the public. Do you think it's one of these cases where you're not going to be taken seriously again, perhaps till you're dead and gone? Well, I'm, I'm not taken seriously by, I should say, all the art critics anyway. I mean, if I'm ever written about by the art critics, it's just the utmost garbage they write. I mean, they, they run me down just like nothing. I mean, I'm worse than the dogs, something the dogs picked up. I really am, because I'm popular and I sell to the public. I was even called offensive by a certain man in the Royal Academy in print you know, the other day. You know, he said, oh, he hangs with the China Mallards and the Dorchimes and the Neff AstroTurf. <laughs> I love it. Well, that's all right. I live with that sort of thing because that's what I expect from that rather silly man. Very left-wing, too. Um, <laughs> but when he called my work offensive, I said, look here, now that's not on. And I demanded an apology, which I got because I don't offend people with my work. I mean, it's, it's a bit off that. It really is. So how can you explain your popularity? Because you are extraordinarily popular. Why, why do you think you're popular amongst all the other artists? I think it's because I paint what the public like to buy. But I don't pamper to the public. I don't paint it in the way I paint it because I know the public are going to buy it. I paint every picture I do is the best I can do based on the finest training that anybody could have possibly had, private training, from this amazing man who took me on. And if I hadn't met that man, having been chucked out of art school, if I hadn't met that man, I wouldn't be here talking to you now. I'd be driving buses for a living. I really honestly mean that. Um, now, he taught me to never let a painting out of the studio unless you're happy with it, never mind about how long somebody's been waiting for it or how much money he's going to pay for it or how popular it's going to be. And that's the integrity which I've, been, I've had trained into me, integrity and discipline. And the fact that people started buying my pictures, it helped being in the mass-produced print market, you know, in Boots the Chemist, with, <laughs> with a certain painting called Wise Old Elephant, which I refer to with some sense of um, irritation now because it's a very early painting but it certainly put me on the map wise old elephant mm. but mass produced prints thousands of them all over the world um, and that did do me a lot of good certainly there's no question about it it made my work popular yes now you say you paint what the public want why do you think they want wildlife well, I didn't say that actually I didn't say I paint what the public want I right. paint I, well yes I suppose that is true in a way because uh, yes the public Joe Public says will you paint me an elephant and so I paint an elephant for Joe Public yes I suppose that is right but why are wildlife um, and elephants in particular so popular why do you think people want them I don't know um, again you see I'm not answering some of these questions very um, very deeply because I don't know I, 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 I don't like this sort of with great respect to you no disrespect but I don't like this sort of analysing why I do this sort of thing because I was on that very RT program Kaleidoscope on the on the radio again. Um, it's it's rather sort of take gallery type thing. And again, the man said, people don't buy David Shepard's elephant paintings because they're great art. They buy them because they like elephants. Well, fine. I mean, I I love people liking elephants because I love elephants. And if I can paint them with the best degree of ability that I know how, putting 
every bit of my heart and soul into every painting I do of an elephant or whatever, and then somebody buys it, and they like elephants, then what could be better than that? And I'm earning my living. Couldn't be better. I'm very happy. And so elephants. Elephants are happy too. And so are the people. But I want to just get away from elephants a bit, because uh, you brought the point up just now that I do paint other things, and not many people realise this. And this is why it's so nice to have the private collection of paintings which you've seen in the, in, in the house here, which belong to my family, Lancaster Bombers, you know, HMS Art Royal, English Landscapes, Plough Horses, Portraits, all the things I'm not known for. And that collection goes all over the world, literally all over the world, courtesy of various airlines who do it for nothing, to raise money for my foundation. They're not for sale because they belong to the kids and my wife, but um, that gives me an enormous joy because every weekend they're out somewhere raising money. 20,000 quid in a weekend sometimes we raise for wildlife. And people say, gosh, we didn't know you did that sort of thing. We thought you just painted elephants. And they come expecting to see 30 pictures of elephants and they only see one picture of an elephant. It's, so that's lovely for me. Whatever you're painting, whether it be trains or wildlife, whatever, do you have a specific technique which goes across the board for your paintings? No. Uh, my technique is something that I was trained in. You know, the man who trained me trained me to be a realistic painter because he painted in realism. And he said after three years of training, right, you're on your own now, David. Uh, I can't teach you anymore. And at that time, I was painting very like him, inevitably, because I've been with him every day for three years. Um, obviously nothing as well as him but he said don't worry your your technique will develop on its own don't make it develop it will just develop naturally and he said pick the bones of all the other great painters that have gone in the past go to the National Gallery in which there are some magnificent works of art obviously and also some pretty awful ones frankly in my view in my view um, pick the bones of all the artists that have gone before you and um, your style will develop by looking at other people and uh, I know my failings. I'm, I'm trying very hard to get less photographic. But when you paint Arnhem for the Parachute Regiment or HMS Art Royal for the Fleet Air Army, so you're going to be very photographic. You're bound to be. When you paint an, art, uh, an aircraft carrier or whatever, it's got to be accurate. And in that sense, painting for the services in the old days not exactly did me any harm, but it made me realise that if I wasn't careful, I was going to be, end up being very photographic, and I'm trying to get away from that. Do you have many ambitions as an artist? Are there any galleries in the world which haven't taken your pictures out and you'd love them to have one? There are thousands of galleries that haven't taken my work. I don't hang in the Water, Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool. I don't hang in the Tate. I don't hang... Uh, going back to your earlier question, um, um, I, it may sound very unambitious, but, uh, you see, I come back to the point. I just want to paint for people. And I'd much rather paint for the postman up the road than have a picture in the Tate Gallery. Mm. And I'd probably be better known as a result of painting for all the lovely postmen that I know, you know, metaphorically, than having one picture in the Tate Gallery. I think I've made that point. I'm, I'm very happy as I am, extremely lucky and happy. As you say, you had a very difficult beginning. It wasn't easy for you as an artist. Tell us about your early start. I, I didn't actually say I've had a very difficult beginning. I've had a totally disastrous beginning. Yes, utterly disastrous. I mean, I'll show you this bird painting. Oh, it's hysterical. I wouldn't sell it for the world. It means more to me than all the pictures you've seen in the gallery. I mean, they really, and all the pictures hanging in the house because my life was a series of disasters, total disasters. I never wanted to be an artist. I had no talent, no talent whatsoever. And it's quite funny when I'm doing my talks, my lectures and things, raise money for wildlife. You know, we have about 500 people in a hall sometimes. And this is the way to get the audience with you straight away, get them laughing. There's nothing better than laughter to get them with you. So I tell them the stories about how I'm mixed up with the Bishop of Liverpool. You know, everybody thinks I'm the Bishop of Liverpool, including the BBC, who've got their files mixed up. They've asked me to go on the radio and talk about the Bible not realising that I live in Godalming in Surrey, which would be damned inconvenient if I was the bishop. <laughs> anyway, um, no, I, I, and when I show this painting to people, they say, my God, you're right, you didn't have any talent. It makes them laugh, it's unbelievable. I wanted to be a game warden, you see. I dreamt of being a game warden in Africa. 
And I had this arrogant assumption that I was God's gift to the national parks in Kenya. And they shut me out before I even got in. They said, we haven't got a vacancy. Well, let's just establish how you got out to Africa in the first place. Were your parents based out there? Or no, I'd never been to Africa. But um, I said, Daddy, I'd love to be a game warden. And Daddy said, OK, go out to Africa. You know, I mean, I was so lucky. I mean, he... Oh, God, I mean, it fills me with shame now. I mean, I... I we didn't do any research. I just thought I'm going to Kenya to be a game warden. I had this over-romantic idea that I was going to prance around in short pants and a suntan and leopard skin around with a brim in my hat, you know, all day and all that rubbish. And what sparked that off? Was it a film you watched? Or no, the, a book it, you it read? was just that I collected books in the 30s when I was growing up in the 1930s, um, living in London, and I just was obsessed with Africa. Never been there. I'd only been to Calais and back, and how that, how that qualifies you to be a game warden in Africa. Uh, I can't imagine. Anyway, I went out there, and Daddy said, OK, take all your worldly goods. Oh, my God, I feel shamed when I think about it, because I went for five years, so I thought, and uh, promptly said, we don't want you, the National Parks said. Rightly so, because they didn't have any vacancies, and I was totally unqualified. And my dad wouldn't let me home. He said, you can bloody well pay your passage home now. You So I painted ten unspeakably ghastly bird pictures, like this one I've still kept for ten pounds a time, and sold them to the culture-starved inhabitants of Malindi on the Kenya coast, where I was working. In a was hotel. that quite easy to do? Yes. Oh. <laughs> it must have been easy to do. They paid 10 quid for these horrendous things. Um, two of them are still in existence, believe it or not. Was, was um, art in the family at all? What were your no. parents into? Never, never any art in my family at all. There never had been. My dad had been in advertising and he was in the army. And then he went into the catering business and had a hotel. No art at all. And, see, I only did it at school. When I was at public school, I'd mucked about in it simply to get off the rugger field because I was terrified of playing rugger. I was one of these... Stowe, Stowe's called. Um, I was one of these snotty-nosed little boys, and I, I didn't see the fun in having my neck broken in a sea of mud, you see. I couldn't see the pleasure. So I, I fled into the art school and painted these awful bird things with no, no interest in art, whatever. Mm. It's just an escape. So how did your parents feel about you going into art? Well, you see, I'm, I'm so lucky. You said I had it tough. I didn't. I, I, I've been sheltered all. I'm so lucky. I keep saying I'm lucky. Because when I came home again, having failed to be a game warden in Africa, I had two choices. One was to drive a bus around Aldershot, because we lived in Gabley, and the nearest bus company was in Aldershot, or else somehow be an artist. And I said, well, I'd rather be an artist and starve, because I thought I would starve, than drive buses. So my dad said, well, you better go and have some training. And the only art school we'd ever heard of was the Slade School of Fine Art, into which I entered with this ghastly bird picture, which I still have and I keep talking about. And they took one look and said, no way, will you be an artist? Go and drive a bus. You are so untalented, please go. And it was uh, 1952, this was, and I think I was, I suppose I was on the point of getting a job with the Aldershot and District Traction Company, you know, driving buses, when I met this amazing man, Robin Goodwin. So he must have seen something in your bird if you Well, didn't. that's the thing which I constantly think about because uh, people, you know, I, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think he took me on as a challenge because he saw somebody so un unbelievably awful that he took me on. In what sense do you take you on? Is it like a photographer taking on an assistant? Is that how it works? Yes, exactly like that. I was, I was his apprentice for three years, like in the old days of the old masters. They all had apprentices. And it was a love-hate relationship. I mean, I hated him and loved him at the same time because his philosophy was the hard way is the best way to teach anything, particularly painting. And he drilled it into me the first morning I was with him that it was a business. If I was going to be a painter with a family, presumably one day to support, school fees and income tax and the gas board, you've got to work seven days a week, whether you feel like it or not, in, in your studio. The moment is daylight, on Sundays as well. And it's this training that I still live by now, the discipline. And he said, I'm never going to say anything good about anything you do because I'm going to assume you know the good things. I burst into tears. He said, if you've got ideas about prancing around and throwing your paint at the wall and expressing yourself, 
You know, the sort of art that gets in the Tate Gallery. <laughs> the Tate Gallery don't like me. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. I think it's sad, you see, the public like me talking like this because so many people feel like I do, but they can't say it. There's some wonderful art in the Tate Gallery, beautiful Rodin statues, but then you go in there and you see dirty nappies and building bricks and junk like that. Well, honestly, I mean, what sort of fools are we supposed to be to believe that's art? It's like the king's new clothes, isn't it, really? Absolutely, exactly, absolutely. And after three years, Robin uh, said, right, I can't teach you anymore. So where did, where did you go from you know, trying hard and studying and so on to actually becoming a successful artist? What, what was the big break for you? Well, very, very quickly, the big break. Um, you see, I was sheltered for the first year after I'd had my training, and that, I only realise now how valuable that was, because if I'd gone straight into the materialistic world and had to earn my living, I might have started churning out stuff purely to pay the bills, and thank God I didn't have to. My dear old dad, after my training, said, you can still stay at home for a year which I did, and I seized that chance to... Because fortunately, I'm not the sort of guy who just sits down. I'm born energetic, and I believe in using every moment that life gives, because life's too short. And uh, so I spent that whole year of 1953 at London Airport painting aeroplanes, pictures of aeroplanes, when London Airport was a different place from now. I mean, it was wonderful. It was, I had a permit to go wherever I wanted, and the hangars, and all over the place. Only two aeroplanes landed every hour, you know, ten people got off, so it didn't matter. <laughs> and um, I gradually got to know the aviation companies. They got to know me. I started giving pictures away, like mad, to Vickers Armstrongs and to Havilands, because it was the only way to get in their boardroom, you see. And if I gave them enough paintings, they felt obliged to commission me, which was super. But the big break, to answer your question, was the Royal Air Force then started flying me around the world. And they flew me to Aden in 1960 as their guest. And this was the break. Because as a result of that trip, they then sent me down to Kenya. My second visit to Kenya now, first being as a frustrated game warden. And I arrived in Kenya in 1960 with the RAF when it was still a colony. The Brits were there. And the RAF said, we'd love a couple of pictures for the officers' mess in Nairobi. But we don't want aeroplanes because we fly them all day. We're bored with aeroplanes. Do you do things like animals? And I'd never even paint a hamster. It didn't occur to me to paint animals. But I thought, I said, I'll have a try. Painted my very first wildlife picture for the RAF. Charged them 20 quid. And that changed it. That did it. I mean, my career took off from that moment. Did this love affair for Africa continue always? Has it always stayed there? Of course, because, well, in two ways, because I believe that anybody who goes to Africa and gets the feel of the, the fresh morning air, and I'm getting all lyrical now, but you know what I mean, I don't have to get lyrical. You can't go, uh, Well, <laughs> okay, but you can't go to Africa once. Once you've been bitten by Africa, that is it. You go back. So that's one reason. But the other reason why I keep going back is the conservation element, you see, because Again, on that same trip, the two things happened on that same trip in 1960. I painted my first wildlife paintings. My career immediately began to take off, and I realized straight away what wildlife was going to do for me. And that is also the same time when I saw 255 zebra lying dead on the ground around a poison waterhole. I told that story a thousand times because I want to remind myself of that single dramatic moment when I became a conservationist. I did, because I, I didn't know what conservation meant. But... When you see a site like that at the time your career is suddenly taking off due to the animals you're painting, you'd only be half a man if you didn't say, well, my God, I've got to do something in return. And that's the passage my life's taken ever since. So how did the foundation become set up? How did that get established? Well, I mean, immediately I saw those dead zebra. I said, well, I've got to help, you know, my tiny way. And the very first painting there and then in 1960 I gave was towards elephants. It helped to pay for an artificial waterhole. And it went for £200, I think, the original. I don't know where it is now. And... It was so exciting, I realised very quickly how easy it was, that being the word, to raise money. I mean, I can... I'm not boasting saying this, but I can raise the sort of money in two hours painting that some people 
have to take five years to raise or three years to raise the hard way by standing out in the street with a flag tin, you know, and putting ten, ten peas in. That's the hard way to raise money. I'm so easy. It's just so easy because I'm painting every day anyway. And I'm not giving anything away. You know, I'm only diverting a painting to help wildlife instead of selling it. And if I can afford to do that, that's fine. I started and developed the idea of raising money by giving paintings to various wildlife conservation charities. But about five years ago, I felt very strongly that, and I have to say this, that a lot of charities, I think, big charities, I won't mention names, they do a lot of good work, obviously they do, but a number of people say to me now, where does the money go if we give it to big charities? I have to say this because it's a fact. And conversely, it was suggested actually by Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, who was a lovely man, dear friend of us, he said, why don't you start your own charity, David? Because you almost quote him exactly, he said, you have such an amazing ability to raise money so easily for wildlife, why don't you have your own charity through which to do it? So we did. And that's the Conservation Foundation for Endangered Mammals, David Shepard Conservation Foundation. There are only four of us. It's based in this house. So we don't have an office full of people. And when lovely people give us money, they can feel it actually goes to buying, for example, a Land Rover for the anti-poaching patrols in Zambia. They walk, you know, in an area the size of Wales, these marvellous Africans being shot at by gangs with AK-47s. I know, because I've been out with them. And if you give them a Land Rover, they immediately think, gosh, we're being appreciated. And the lovely lady in Cleethorpes or wherever who helps us to buy that Land Rover can feel, I've helped to buy a Land Rover. See, that's something consequential. And this has, is our philosophy. Has there been any one moment since the foundation's been <coughs> set up that you felt, well, that's made it all worthwhile? Yes, but conversely, there have been a million moments every day of the week when I think, why do I bother? I really do. I wouldn't be here talking to you now and full of enthusiasm if I didn't realise there was hope. Of course there is. The hope is in the form of children. Because, honestly, 50 times a day, I think, why are we doing this when we're making such a bloody awful mess of the world? Man is the most dangerous, greedy, arrogant animal on God's earth. He really is. Corruption in big business, you know, with all the things we're reading about in big business in the city. People being let out of jail and giving a million pounds to pay their fine. You know what I'm talking about. And that sort of thing. I mean, I'm not talking about conservation now, but it's just an example of how corrupt the world is and how stupid the world is, the things going on in Bosnia. I mean, there's no sense... Everybody's blasting the guts out of everybody else. It's cockeyed, it really is. And destroying the world. I mean, every time a tanker goes on the rocks, oh, my God, why do we bother? And worse, when a tanker goes on the rocks, the owners of the tanker say, saying, as they did with the Brayer off the Shetland Isles, we're still going to go that way because it gets there quicker and earns more money for our shareholders. Bugger the environment. You know, as long as that attitude exists, there is (laughs) very little hope. We're destroying England with motorways. You know what we're doing near Winchester, Twyford Down. I mean, it's, it's a crime. It's, it's, it's vandalism to do what we're doing because England isn't big enough to go on co- covering it with concrete motorways. If we had a decent railway system, we wouldn't have to do it. But there is hope when you meet children because children are fed to the back teeth now. They really are. Well, has there been one moment that's made you feel, well, that was, that was our work and we're doing some good? Yes, there are many. When I, you know, when I meet children, I keep talking about children. You see, I st- yes, there is one moment, really, um, I suppose, if you want a direct answer. Because uh, I started about five years ago asking children when I talked to them, what's the most dangerous animal? I want a quick answer. You know, ask a lot of adults nowadays, they still give me the wrong answer. They say elephants, rhino, buffalo, leopard, crocodile. No, I, no, this one, and I point at myself. I say, not me personally, but this one. Now, I always got the wrong answer. Now, when I get the right answer... And I suppose to answer your question, it was the first time I got the right answer. Little tiny primary kids, you know, about six years old, I said, what's the most dangerous animal? And six of them leap up and say, man, Mr. Shepherd, mm. you see, that we're winning. We are beginning to win. Mm. Have you ever been uh, attacked by an animal, had any trouble with them yourself? 
No, I've been chased. But, I mean, I love being asked that question because I love giving the answer. Uh, you see, it's directly in line with the point I was just making about man, the most dangerous animal. Some members of the press, you know, say, oh, tell us about when you were eaten by a man-eating lion and flattened by an elephant and chewed by a crocodile. And I said, for God's sake, you know. <laughs> I mean, any animal, I always remember the very first game warden I ever met in Africa said, if you leave them alone, they will leave you alone. And it's absolutely right. An elephant will only charge you if you shot at it with an AK-47. It'll take off because every animal knows that man is its most implacable enemy. And, yes, I've been chased. We've done some silly things in Africa. Chased by what? An elephant. I mean, mm. I mean, the BBC made my life story many years ago, and they, that was a very long story. I cut to one sentence. But they said, let's film you painting elephants from life. And I said, don't be so stupid because we'll all get killed, you know. And they said, well, it'll be jolly good fun, you know, let's do it. It's the sort of British spirit, you know, go down with colours flying. <laughs> and um, when I say life, I, I mean, I'm not a watercolour artist with a tiny little sketch pad. I was a bloody great canvas two feet square with an easel and 14 tubes of oil paint and linseed oil and brushes. And we did actually walk up to two bull elephants within 60 paces. They didn't know we were there very quietly, and the wind was right. You see, and I started painting. It was hysterically funny. But the next day, we were charged by a cow elephant. Um, we shouldn't have gone up to her, because I think we, she'd lost her calf or something. Anyway, we were charged flat out. And the warden with us, who was there to guard us, said, uh, look out, she's coming, run. And I left my ballot there, and she charged past my easel, looking very lonely all by itself. <laughs> I knocked my wife over, and we fell over in the heat, and we started giggling, and we tore back to the Land Rover as fast as my little legs would carry me. And I looked round, and this cow elephant was going straight for Rolf, who was there to make sure that we were okay. And thank God he didn't shoot her. I mean, if, if he'd shot her, I'd never have lived it down. Right. Um, he shouted at her mm. and screamed at her. And she spoke English, that cow elephant. I know she did, because the obscenity of his language, I'll never forget it. It was hysterical. <laughs> have, you got a, uh, have you got a place out in Africa? Do you, do, you, um, do you plan to buy a property out there or what? No, no, I don't. I love living in England. I wouldn't live anywhere else. I mean, I, see, luck, 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 like, again. I can go whenever I want within the confines of my commitments here. And we have so many friends all over Africa now. I'm so lucky again. We have a host of people in every country I've been to in Africa who say, when are you going to come out with your wife and just forget conservation, forget painting, just have a week, you know, sitting and looking at game? And I say, well, I'd love to, but I can't because there's so many things going on. I, I can't sit down doing nothing. Now, the foundation, as you say, is based here, but do you have any headquarters in Africa at all? Yes, we're based in Zambia. We've got two lovely people in Zambia who run the foundation in Zambia. That's one of our most active countries, actually. Um, South Africa was setting somewhere up, too, because we're doing a lot in South Africa. India, we're hoping to in India because... See, it's not just Africa. I mean, we concentrate on endangered mammals, but the tiger is on the way out so fast now, it's horrifying. Um, so is the rhino, so is the panda, so many other major endangered species which we're concentrating on. We've called it the Foundation for Endangered Mammals because we wanted to keep it closely tied to the animals I paint and for which I'm known for, rather than helping rainforests and pollution and leave that to the Worldwide Fund for Nature who are better equipped to do it. Because of all the <coughs> politics that goes on, do you worry about having associations with South Africa? From the uh, human point of view, no, not in the least. I've got, I've got as many black friends there as I have white friends. Um, it's very sad that you can't separate politics from conservation. Very sad. But you can't. And I've said some very controversial things, both to white and black people. I don't care what colour a man is. Not a, not, it doesn't matter. It's a fact of life we have to live with. And another sad thing is that within conservation you get an awful lot of jealousies and petty little sort of bickering. And, but that's the same in every walk of life, and you just have to live with it. And we do our best in the best way we know how. You mentioned your wife earlier on. Tell us how you met. 
<laughs> oh, gosh. Well, my dad had a hotel in Camberley. Uh, we were living in Camberley in those days. This is in the 50s, and Camberley in those days was very different from what it is now. If you didn't play bridge or golf or you were ex-Indian Army, none of which we did or were, we were social outcasts, and it was very, we had, it was very difficult. Anyway, we, we did our own thing. And that was when I was having my training, actually, with Robin Goodwin. And uh, there was a ghastly party which was thrown every year at the golf club by two elderly women who were trying to get rid of their ward of court girl, this rather pudding-faced girl. They were trying to get her married. So they used to ask all the Santos cadets up, hundreds of them in great busloads, and my brother and I. And my brother and I stood out like sore thumbs because we were the only ones with sort of long hair, reasonably length hair. They, all the Santos cadets had pudding basin haircuts, you see. And, <laughs> and we used to behave so badly. We always used to hope that we would never be asked back. And that's where I first met Avril. And Avril, bless her heart, she, she was living an unbelievably sheltered life. I mean, her background is so complicated, I can't remember it even. She, hasn't, she didn't have a mother or a father. Her father was killed in the RAF in the war, and her mother died just after having Avril's sister. Oh, it's so complicated. And she was brought up by a lovely stepmother, but not so lovely stepfather, with whom I had a frightful row. But we were friends later on. And, um, I mean, neither of us knew anything about sex or marriage or anything. It was frightening, actually. To, to, public school for you, eh? Uh, yeah, right, absolutely. To stow school, good God, I didn't know what a girl looked like. The only girl I knew was my sister. <laughs> and um, in that respect, it's frightening to think how we went into marriage without even beginning to think about the implications. Were you together long before you got married, and when did you get married? We got married in 1957, and uh, because of this stepfather chap, we were chaperoned until about three weeks before the marriage. I mean, it really was awful, but I won't go into that. We made friends afterwards. But you see, he was uh, sort of regular army type, and he uh, saw in his future son-in-law somebody ex-army, you know, Wellington College, Sandhurst, regular army, and an artist who'd never even done his national service. I mean, it was something rather low. Um, I didn't do national service simply because I was medical out because I had hay fever. <laughs> but um, anyway, as I say, we made friends afterwards, but it was a very difficult time. Well, anyway, well, we've been married more than 30 years, amazingly. Oh, amazingly, because I'm I'm hell to live with. I mean, I may seem very sort of enthusiastic and abulent, if that's the word, but I get into terrible sort of fits of temperament and I'm, a lot of pictures are going badly and I take it out of Avril. And God knows why she is married to me, particularly when I have expensive hobbies like buying bloody great locomotives weighing 200 tonnes each. <laughs> well, I think the most surprising thing is you think, well, somebody's successful now. Why does he get worked up about things? Because you've got everything you want now, surely. I've got everything I want in the material sense and more, yes. I'm earning a lot of money. I've got stacks of work ahead of me. We live in a glorious house. All my family are well taken care of. My daughters are happily married. And what more could one wish for? But, I, yes, I mean, I get infinitely worked up every minute of the day because of what we're doing to the world. I mean, this is the conservation side of me. I could sit back and say, well, I've done enough, but I'm not made like that. Mm. Because it's so easy to raise money for wildlife, the more I learn and the more I see, the stronger the motivation is to do something about it. Because there are a lot of people outside that window who see in me, and I'm very privileged to be able to say this, very privileged indeed, not just me, for God's sake, it's the people who are much better known than me, who've got bigger names who get on television, who can do something. And if you can do something about it and speak for Mrs. Joe Bloggs in Wigan, you know, who's never getting on television. I was sent five quid some years ago by an old-age pensioner in Wigan who said, I don't know where Zambia is, I'm never going to go get outside Wigan because I can't afford it. But you move me so much when you're talking about the plight of the rhino that here's five pounds and make sure it goes to the rhino. How can you give up when you get support like that? You can't. It just reduces me to tears sometimes. Presumably your wife is a tremendous support as well, isn't she? I mean, especially, as you say, when you have these bad times and so on. I couldn't do any of the things I'm doing without Avril's support because, in a way, she's a foil to me. 
I mean, I smash things. You know, if I get angry, I smash things. There's a door in the house which always gets broken, and every time I do it, I think, oh, God, I've got to ring up the builders. You know, I smash the telephone. And that's <laughs> I know it's stupid, but I'm made like that. Avril, on the other hand, um, she doesn't exactly bottle it up. Occasionally we have the odd real ding-dong, but we kiss and make up afterwards because that's the fun of it. <laughs> if you, uh, but, no, she's placid. She hates the word placid, but she's the opposite to me. She's the butt to me, really, and it's a marvellous combination because if she was explosive like I am, I don't know what would happen. Does she work? She look after the foundation? Oh, God, I mean, she's flat out faster than I am because the foundation being in the house here, you see, we've lost our private life almost entirely, uh, but I accept that as inevitable. We occasionally, I suppose, once a fortnight, have an evening on our own in the house because I'm out almost every evening lecturing or she's out or whatever. But she holds the foundation together in the sense that she's doing all the catering apart from anything else. I mean, see, based in the house, we have working breakfasts, we have working lunches, six people to lunch. Every evening, for not out, we are entertaining people. And they're not always our close personal friends purely because we want them to come to dinner. There's always a conservation motive. There are people coming because they want to talk about the foundation. So we say, come to dinner. Mm. And that's a hell of a lot of work. Wonderfully supported by super staff we have. I hate the word staff. They're our friends. We don't use the word staff. But we are lucky in that respect. How booked ahead are you? Years or years in advance? Well, with commitments. Well, yeah. It's crazy. Apart from all the commissions I've got, which are four years ahead... I think we're sorting out now something like 140 invitations to do things next year. I mean, Melanie, who runs the foundation, knows the details. But we're having to say no to an awful lot of them, not only in England, I mean, all over the place. And I'm frightened. Frightened is the word. I'm, I'm frightened that I'm 62 now. And I mean, I'm hopefully another 20 years at least, but I, God knows what I'm going to be like when I'm 82. Um, but time is running out in the sense that I'm frustrated. I, I, would, I want to try and have a sabbatical, you see, where sabbatical in the sense not sitting on my bottom for a year still painting seven days a week but painting what I want to paint as opposed to what I'm asked to paint going back to the days painting aeroplanes and English landscapes but still you raise money for wildlife at the same time and I could do that if I was more strong than saying to people no you can't have a painting and I could say that but I don't want to because as I said right at the beginning of the interview people come up and say look I've got a thousand quid is there a chance I don't mind waiting 20 years well how can you say no to somebody like that Mm. Would you say you put your work before your family? Do you not see enough of your family? Yes, I think to some extent, yes. I certainly did in the old days, yes. Um, I won't say I was a rotten father because I took the girls when they were small to Zambia instead of taking them down to Kent to play sandcastles on the beach. <laughs> and I don't think they'd regret the choice. <laughs> took them into a national park instead, and the result is they're all conservationists. But in the early days, I, I, I mean, I suppose every father can say this. No, I never went on cruises for two weeks looking after, you know, on ships just to give the kids sun and sea air. No, I never did that at all. Can we go through the names and ages of your daughters and grandchildren and so on? Oh, gosh, yes, if you want to. Um, well, they're all girls. Melinda's the eldest. She's the school teacher. She's uh, 32. Uh, the next one is Mandy. She's the extrovert of the family. She's the wild one, if you like. Well, not the wild one, but she's the exception. She's very like me. She's She's waving her arms about already and saying, Daddy, I can't cope. You know, I've got so much commission. Oh, God, what am I going to do? She takes on too much. <laughs> she gets it from me. She's approximately 30. I'm right. sorry, I got it. And she's married to a surgeon. Right. That's a hell of a mixture, that is. Um, Melanie is 28, I suppose. No, she's 30, so Mandy must be 32 and Melinda must be 34. They're roughly two years ahead. Melanie's running the foundation and she's married into the army. Uh, Graham is a fabulous chap. Um, they met through the Iranian embassy siege, which I painted for the SAS. And he was one of the officers involved, and um, he came up to talk about the painting and met Melanie and married us, so that was rather nice. Their meeting was due to the Ayatollah Khomeini, I suppose, so <laughs> it was rather funny. 
And the youngest, Wendy, is living in America. She's 27, I think, oh. yes. Uh, she's married to a lovely American guy who works on a farm, big ranch. I'm blissfully happy. So how do you feel about being a granddad? Does it make you feel very old? Well, yes. You see, I get a bit worried about this because I hope I don't look 62. I certainly don't feel 62. I feel about 30 sometimes. I, I really mean that. I'm very lucky to be able to say that. And when I say I have eight and a half grandchildren, there's another one arriving in August, Mandy's having a third, People are supposed to say you don't look old enough to have, but they don't, so that worries me a bit. <laughs> um, but no, I'm so lucky. I mean, I suppose most people say this if they've got super grandchildren, but they're all lovely kids. They're well disciplined, they're well behaved, as our four girls are. I mean, they've been brought up, I think, a nice way. They realise the value of money and they're well behaved and they can talk to people and they're lovely, open girls. Gorgeous. How often do you see your family and what sort of things do you do when you do see them? Well, a birthdays, they all come here, you know, and I'm frankly wrapped up in my work, so I'm. I'm very generously appearing for about an hour at tea time and they bash back into the studio again, which in that sense I'm a bit naughty. I was dreadful when the girls were growing up. Um, when they were at school, they went locally to school in Godalming and they used to come for lunch and bring their friends and they used to say, Daddy's going to be in a filthy mood. He won't say anything, but he's like that, you know. <laughs> and I would be like that. You see, I, it's very difficult when you're painting all day to come up from the studio and switch off completely and talk what I would think at the time were silly things like Greek dancing. and I mean, it's very naughty to talk like that because that was their life as they were growing up as small young people. And I'm very selfish, actually. That is, I know I'm selfish. I'm very self-centred and selfish about that sort of thing, but I'm afraid I may like that. Well, obviously, um, your children are following you into conservation. What about art? Is there any artistic... Uh... Yes, Mandy is doing extremely well. She's already a successful artist. She, she has a diploma, which is more than I ever got. She went to Brighton Art College, very well trained, and working like the clappers, masses of work. She paints wildlife in watercolours, thank God, because if she was painting manures, I think I'd give up by now. I get introduced as Mandy's father now, which does me a lot of good, actually. It's good for my inflated ego, because some people have said I've got an inflated ego. I probably have. I imagine she's avoiding <laughs> elephants with large ears. No, though. she's doing elephants. But they're watercolours. They're lovely. It's lovely work. Um, Melanie is also very talented. She, she, she wants to get into sculpture, but she never has time because she's running the foundation. And it's a seven-day-a-week job. Mm. It truly is. Now, when you're away from your work, which I imagine isn't very often, what do you like to do? Well, it's, it's not work, you see. I mean, this is a very trite way of answering the question, but everything I do, whether it's mm. conservation, painting or steam railways, those are the three things in my life which are... I'm living three lives, really, because I'm trying, on the one hand, to earn my living and keep up with the commission work. The other is to do my bit for the David Shepherd Conservation Foundation, charity number one. Charity number two is the East Somerset Railway, and, which is also desperately in need of money and takes up nothing like as much time as it used to because I have to put wildlife first but it's three lives and it's it's not work it's all tremendous fun it's very tiring I'm not finding it too tiring so far but I mean the day's going to come fairly soon when I can't do what I did the other day for example which I was painting in the morning quickly changed into another um, sort of safari suit and drove up to Stockport in Manchester uh, did a talk show and came back again I had somebody to drive me home thank god but didn't go back until sort of half past two in the morning. And I was painting again by nine o'clock the next morning. And that is a bit stupid, but we raised £6,000 that one evening in Stockport from 400 people. So I was going to say, is there a particular time of the day where you paint, or do you have to be in your studio, or what happens? Yes, I'm, I'm a creature of habit to the point of annoyance without... I mean, not exactly annoyance, but Avril lives with it. But I'm a terrible creature of habit. Unlike Robin Goodwin... I, I get carried away by my painting, but not to the extent of Robin Goodwin, who trained me. He used to listen to the radio, and it would switch stations, and he'd never even notice, and they'd gone to a French station. I'm not like that. I start painting roughly, I suppose, every morning at half past nine, but I get up at seven, and I'm dictating letters until half past nine. 
I'm in the studio roughly by half past nine, and I'm painting until half past ten when I stop on the dot for a cup of coffee in the kitchen. It's, it's a religion in this house. We have the busmen and uh, the, the police sometimes and the builders or everybody in for coffee, and 15 people around the table sometimes in the kitchen. Winkworth Farm coffee time. It's lovely. I mean, love it. Does all this date back to the times when you had to be disciplined, though, as a freelance, as it were, and you had to make sure you did so much work a day? Yes, I think it does. I've uh, never been asked that, but I think it probably does, yes. I mean, I, I am naturally a person who can't sit down and do nothing anyway, but Robin Goodwin certainly, yes, taught me to be disciplined, and it's now come out in the form of I'm a creature of habit. Stop at, stop at lunch one o'clock, and if it's lunch at two o'clock, I get cross. And poor Avril, I mean, she's trying to cope. I'm piling it on a bit, but I, I am basically like that. If you wanted to kill me, you could take me out to the Bahamas and sit me on a beach under a palm tree with a gin and tonic. And in a deck chair, and I'd be dead with frustration after an hour. I'd go crazy. Do you keep yourself fit? Do you go and do any sport or anything? To keep no, yourself I haven't got fit? time. No, but I'm, I'm an energetic, and I, I find that if I have got an hour to spend after I've had a hard day painting in the studio, I get out in the garden and go and attack something, you know, um, <laughs> without doing any harm to the environment, but uh, something physical as a physical release, yes. Mm. And I have to have eight hours sleep a night, and if I don't get it, I'm knackered. I gather you're also building a miniature railway in your... Studios. Well, I'm having it built because I haven't got the time. But I mean, as if I haven't got enough problems with the full scale railway down in Somerset. Well, gosh. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, I, I'm, I, I take on too much. But I'm in the position now where I can afford to pay somebody to do all the hard work. You see, so this in 20 years' time, and it's finished, it'll be a nice form of relaxation. What is this with railways and you? Well, I didn't stand on train platforms when I was a little boy and take train numbers. I wasn't that sort. And very quickly, I, I came into trains. Well, I'm a train fanatic because my father was steam trains. I get it from him. Had a model railway when I was a kid and all that. So did my father. Um, he took the best bedroom of the house over, you know, where we were living and turned it into a model railway. So that was the bug. But it only developed really when I saw through my painting the most wonderfully exciting subjects to paint, which you'll see when you see the paintings I've got in the collection of steam engine sheds. Shafts of sunlight, you know, pouring through the roof of an old steam shed onto the engines, all steaming away like giant kettles. Wonderful stuff to paint. Not trains coming straight out of a tunnel mouth, you know, at you, three-quarter front view. That's been done to death in photographs. And so when I'd finished my training and I had time to paint what I wanted to paint, I saw in these places the most wonderful sources of inspiration. And then left railways entirely until the mid-60s, when I suddenly woke up to the fact that our steam age was going very, very, very fast, catastrophically fast as a lot of other people woke up to the same thing. And so in, the, in 1967 and eight, for example, I'd be painting elephants all day, elephants metaphorically, in my studio here. And then in the evening, I'd rush to Guildford steam sheds or Nine Arms sheds near Waterloo and bash something down onto canvas in the last feverish minutes of the, before the death of steam. And I've still got those canvases. They're valuable beyond price, not in monetary terms, but to me, because they're authentic. And um, I got the preservation bug then as well. I suddenly thought, my gosh, I wonder if I can buy a steam engine. Everybody else was doing it, so why shouldn't I? And very, very quickly, on the strength of a New York exhibition I had in 1967 of wildlife paintings, sold the whole lot on the first evening, I'm very impetuous by nature. I don't think first, I act and then worry afterwards. I picked up the telephone and phoned British Rail and said, can I buy two steam engines? And that did it, Black Prince and the Green Knight, my two engines weighing 140 tonnes each. Mm. And from that started, after a long, hard struggle, we've got the East Somerset Railway, which is two and a half miles of track, and we have about 50,000 visitors a year, giving a lot of pleasure to a lot of people, costing the earth to run. But that's another side of the story. Tell us a bit about this house, the history of this house, if you can. Well, yes, very quickly again. We were living in Farnham. Uh, our first little house, we had the kids in, at Farnham, uh, the first two kids anyway, the first three kids, actually. And I suddenly realised, well, I began to realise we'd have to get a bigger house. 
and we were having dinner. This was 1961, I think. We were having dinner in uh, just down the road with Robin Goodwin, who taught me to paint. He lived down here. And uh, he, I told him we were thinking of moving. And he said, oh, well, David, there's a lovely old house. The old boys just died in it, just up the road. Let's go and see it. It was May, and the wisteria was covering the front of the house. I just thought to Robin, don't be stupid. We're not going to buy a house like that. We're not millionaires. Dirk Bogart had just looked at it or somebody mm. like that. And everything just happened right. Come November, the house came on the market. We, having been refused the money to buy it by the bank, they said, no, we're not going to lend you that sort of money. It was featured in the Daily Telegraph, Winkworth Farm. There was a photograph of it in the States page on Tuesday. And it said there was a rare chance to buy a unique property in Hascombe, expected to reach a sum well in excess of 25000 which would be a million now. And that finished us. I said, well, we're not even going to bother. Well, we did bother. We looked at the house. It was semi-derelict. It was in a filthy state. Structurally, it was all right, but all the oak beams were covered up with Victorian plywood, you know, black varnish, and the Inglenook fireplaces were filled in with sort of vomit-coloured bricks. <laughs> and uh, two things happened. A terrible fog came down for about three weeks, and nobody came to look at the house. And the next thing that happened was I had my very first wildlife exhibition in London, one-man show, and my bank manager was there, sold again every picture at the opening. It was almost a free fight for the pictures, and my bank manager came up to us at the opening, and he said, I'll always remember, well, I'd like to have another talk about Winkworth Farm, Mr. Chairman. And uh, we were the only people who looked at the house, and we got it for 21000 entirely due to my wildlife pictures, my elephants. I presume you'll never sell it now. Well, no. I mean, I, I won't say I'll never sell it. I mean, it's a very leading question. I'm very restless by nature. I mean, I wouldn't dream of selling it at the moment. No, of course I wouldn't. We're settled here probably forever, yes. But we did actually put, on, put the house on the market three years ago. Um, because I couldn't stand painting in what was the old studio. You've seen it where the pictures are hanging now. That was the old studio butting right onto the road. Um, that's the new wing of the house built in 1780. And so uh, What's the history of the house, very quickly? Well, it's a, it's Elizabethan, uh, 1560 vintage, grade two listed farmhouse, with an addition 1780, 16 acres and a trout lake and a garden, a dream garden, right in the Surrey Stockbroker Belt. It's been called by an architect a very fine example of a small Elizabethan farmhouse. Um, Is it haunted, David? We're told by the agents that there's a friendly ghost, yes, to, uh, to add on another couple of thousand quid to the asking price, I suspect. We've never seen her. We can hear creaking floorboards. Oh, that's, have, oh, that's our bedroom above, yes. yes. Have you ever seen oh. anything here? No, I haven't. Odd things have happened, actually, yes. Odd things have happened. We have got a lovely grandfather clock which we anchored to the wall to stop it falling forward, and it did fall forward one day without any apparent reason. Avril's dressing table things on her dressing table we suddenly found out on the lawn arranged in the grass outside the bedroom window and all the girls swore they had nothing to do with it but I mean that's I don't know mm. but uh, yes I mean the road going past our house is the one horror we have to put up with when we first came here the road was a minor road which it still is it's a B road two cars every 30 minutes that was fine and my studio was butting right onto the road but it got so bad over the years that with 40 ton arctics belting down the hill and screaming their brakes on and I used to paint to this horrible sound waiting for the crunch you know the end of the building being knocked over I've got a thing about this I get so angry about it and we put the house on the market and then we found an architect who takes barns down from farms where they're going to be demolished and to cut a very long story short that now is my new studio in the garden mm. it's 400 years old it's a lovely old barn which we rescued from a farm are you very touchy about who comes in your studio at particular times I, no, I'm not touchy. I, it's a compliment. I, I get slightly irritated if somebody just barges in without knocking on the door, you know, and without an appointment, yes. But, I mean, I don't want to sound stuffy. I'm, my frame, a lovely man, I've been with him for 35 years, and he comes in, he, he knocks, but he comes in mm. and delivers frames. And, no, fine, I'll give him a cup of coffee. Now, you've had some very distinguished people at this house, haven't you, as, as friends and guests and so on. Tell us a 
You've got some smart friends. Come on, Dave. Drop some names. <laughs> oh, name dropping. Oh, God. I love well, how it. Do you know James I love Stewart. it, actually. <laughs> how do you know James Stewart? Well, I met James Stewart at a, an Apollo launch. Apollo 8, I think it was, in Cape Kennedy, Cape Canaveral. Um, he was there with his wife, Gloria. And, of course, I knew all about Jimmy because I'm a Glenn Miller fanatic. I'm, I'm, I love painting all sorts of music, everything from Mahler to Beethoven and Glenn Miller and the Beatles. And uh, Gloria said, would you like to meet Jimmy? And, oh, God. And uh, so we immediately started talking about the Glenn Miller story. And then he came over to London to do Harvey in the West End, that lovely magic rabbit thing, you know. And all our friends said, oh, can we meet Jimmy Stewart? Because we know you know him. And that's how we really got to know him. We went about ten times to Harvey. And on three occasions, we brought him down to this house afterwards, after the Saturday evening performance. And he spent, no, twice he came down, spent Sunday with us. And uh, he's stayed with us here, and we just adore him. I mean, I've seen him lots and lots of times. He wrote the foreword to one of my books. He's got a painting of mine. And I stayed with him in Los Angeles, you know. I, I just wallow in this, you know, when you're staying with him and Gloria picks up the phone and says, Hi, Frank. Hi, Bob. You know, <laughs> you know who they are. Oh, God, I'm not in that sort of league. Um, anyway, he's been here. Uh, Prince Bernhardt's been here. He's a dear, dear man, good friend of ours. Uh, Prince Michael's been several times because he's the patron of my foundation. Who else? Um, president Carpenter of Zambia came last night as I'm talking to you. No longer present, but he's a very close friend of ours. Um, I can't think of anybody else. You, you, you've been given many awards and, and, and medals and so on, and gifts and things. What is the greatest tribute you've ever been paid, do you feel? I don't think it's in material things. It's, uh, it's what people say and do. I mean, the greatest compliment that I can be paid, and I'm thrilled to say it does happen quite often, is when I do a lecture, for example, and we have an interval in the middle, and I really go to town on the ghastly things we're doing. I, I don't mince my words, you know, oil tanker disasters, British government covering England in motorways, da-da-da-da-da, and rhinos and tigers. And um, I mix it all up with humorous anecdotes as well, but in the interval, people come up and say, I just want to shake you by the hand and thank you for what you're doing. Now, you cannot have a greater compliment than that. Can I have your autograph? Uh, it just reduces me to goose pimples. It does. Um, the medals, as you put it, are fine too. I mean, I'm very honoured. I've... Um, Various honours from Zambia and uh, OBE and everything else. Yes, and I'm thrilled skinny. I really am. I'd be wrong to say no. But it's what people say rather than what they do, I think. What's the most one of your paintings has ever sold for? Uh, 60,000, I think. It was a huge elephant painting. Mm. And, and if you now ask me how many paintings I do and I say one a week, you're going to think, well, I own 60,000 a week. Well, I don't. Mm. I have to say that because, you know, uh, that's why I'm slightly reticent about answering the question. But I did, and I'm... Why should I hide it? Do you keep some for yourself and for your family? Well, generally speaking, I can't, because, as I say, I've got a four-year backlog of commissioned work. But when I do a painting for a limited edition print, which is four times a year, I can then keep the original, because I can choose the subject. The publishers say, you just paint what you want, and we know it'll, well, we hope we know it'll sell. And I keep the original, because I don't have to sell it. I can, the money which I need will come in from royalties on the print. I imagine whenever you meet anyone, they ask you to just scribble a quick picture for them and write your name beside it. Absolutely, and I'm not that sort of artist. You see, this is embarrassing, and I'm perfectly happy to say so. I mean, I'm not a Rolf Harris, for example. Rolf Harris is a genius doing that sort of thing. He just And Jerry Durrell and all these other chums, they just do a quick sketch, and it's brilliant. Michael Bentine, lovely, and name-dropping all right, but he's a dear friend of ours. He can draw a beautiful elephant, a funny elephant, on the back of a cigarette packet. If you ask me to do that, I'd make a complete fool of myself because mm. I've not been trained in anatomy. I'm not that sort of artist. Um, and I tell people, if they say, oh, just draw me a quick elephant, I say, no, I'm sorry, I can't. I imagine you've got a lot of ambitions you'd, you'd still like to fulfil. 
Yes, two, really. One I know I won't fulfil, and it's a bit of a joke, really, because I've written three books now, and uh, they're all in print, and I, at the end of each one I say, one of my ambitions is to drive Black Prince into Waterloo Station. That's my lovely, wonderful 140-ton steam engine, which, after my four girls and my wife, means more to me than any other thing I can tell you about, believe me. And uh, British Rail have actually told me now, I've got a lot of friends in British Rail, and they said, David, stop asking, because we're not going to allow it. Um, the other, so, OK, the other ambition is to just simply go on going faster and faster, pleasing if you like, more and more people trying to do what I know best, painting pictures for people, until I drop down dead. Um, and that's really the ambition. I want to live to at least 150, otherwise I won't have achieved half the things I want to achieve. When you're 151, then how would you like to be remembered? <laughs> I think probably as someone who's done the best he can to help stem the tide of destruction that we're doing. That all sounds probably pompous, but... I can't put it very well, but that's that's the point. Um, the one painting I want to be remembered by is my painting of Christ. I won't be. That's another story. I'm not deeply religious, but I'm, nor am I a, an anti-religion, whatever you call it, an atheist, because mm. this one painting, 20-foot by 8-foot painting of Christ I did for the army, nobody knows it's there, and it's the most exciting thing I've ever done in my life. Have you thought of a motto of your gravestone? I've done my best, I think. I've never been asked that. I had to answer that quickly. <laughs> mm.